0: you will open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 37. We're going to read the the first 11 verses and then as we make our way through that Psalm we'll read a few of the other uh, sections till we make it uh, through to the end. Again, Psalm 37 and we'll read beginning in just a moment with verses uh, 1-11. through As we will see In this psalm, that I find myself in circumstances similar to King David, uh, the author of uh, this particular psalm. In that he says that I have been young, but now I am old. Uh, That's a reality that... uh, From a biblical perspective, uh, there's advantages to old age. That is that we are supposed to have some sense of experience, some sense of insight into life. And so David brings that spirit-filled, age-honed perspective On life. I say that because as we gather on this Sunday, a Sunday as we move towards and prepare for uh, Thanksgiving, some of you could say, It's been a difficult year. I have a difficult life. How is it that I? can? How is it that I should give thanks? Because life just ain't what I thought it was going to be. Many of us could say something along that lines. that if we were designing if we were coloring in the numbers of our lives we might have some different colors in our lives. We, we, there, there might be some things that we would like to see changed but yet it remains for every believer no matter how difficult the providence is and folks life can be tough this psalm was written by a man even though he was a king life got tough now like many of us not all of us but like many of us life is tough because of some choices we made You know, David's life got tough, not not only because of the choices he made, but he brought a lot of adversity into his home and upon himself by the sinful choices that he made. Sometimes we can make a direct correlation. Well, I did or didn't do this, and that's why this has come to my life. Other times we're left perplexed. I haven't a clue as to why This set of circumstances, here's the word, has been ordained for my life. I don't know. I don't don't know why. And and I feel the weight, I feel the, the sorrow from these various types of affliction. But yet, if we name the name of Christ, We can, as Jesus said, rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We can rejoice that our sins are forgiven. And I suspect for most of us, while there are certainly chapters of our life we wish we could rewrite, maybe it's even the current chapter of our life we would like to rewrite, we still have, even in that temporal realm, far more to be thankful for than many times we think about. And so let's work our way through this psalm and let's see if we can come to the perspective that the psalmist has. And like all poetry, uh, this poem meanders a bit. But it has a beginning and it has an end. And so it can really be summarized according to the title that I've chosen, he is trustworthy. And we are thankful. That's enough. He is trustworthy. And we are, as his people, we are thankful. Read with me, if you will. Psalm 37. fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tend, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Pray with me. Father, once again we ask that You give us insight into Your Word. God, that Your Spirit that inspired these words, You gave them to to David so long ago, Lord, that that, that these words that are living words uh, would resonate within our hearts and minds and that we would understand them and that Your Spirit would apply them to our lives. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the, the Psalms, we're faced with a, a lot of difficulties. Uh, the first thing being, it's a poem. How many, now, I know that there are people that read poetry for pleasure. I'm not one of them, okay? I'm, I'm just, now, again, I, I can, certainly in the hands of a master teacher, that when I was in high school or college, I could enjoy those guys and their, their insight into all of these things. I, I could enjoy that, but as far as me buying a book of poetry and sitting down for the evening, nah, ain't going to happen. Maybe for most of you it's not something that's uh, likely to happen, but but poetry's kind of hard to, to interpret. There, there are all kinds of literary devices that are used, reputi- repetition, not reputation, repetition, and uh, exaggeration, and rhyme, and on and on it goes, that uh, we have to take into account as we interpret the psalm. When we come to the Bible, one of the basic things that I believe, and I, I didn't learn this, I, you know, I've told you before, I became a Christian at 15 years old, and guess what? I started trying to read the Bible, and guess what? I was bum-fuzzled with it. It said a lot of stuff, and it's a lot of stuff I didn't understand, a lot of stuff that perplexed me, a lot of stuff that, like, what in the world? And so my suspicion is that many times we don't train people very well as to how to read their Bibles and how to understand them. That is, at least it pertains to this text and so many others, there are passages in Scripture that if I read them, they suggest to me that if I'm a Christian, we'll just use that term, if I'm a Christian, it ought to all be okay with me. And when it's not, I just pray a prayer, and it'll it'll improve. I mean, there are passages of Scripture that you read them. There are places here that, you know, like, hey, just read them, and it seems like things should be okay. But that doesn't seem to be my experience. And I was perplexed by it as a very, very young Christian. And so one of the things that I have told you, and this is the United States, you know, church history is littered with false teachers, false prophets, heretics, apostates, etc., etc., etc. Many of the writers of the New Testament, they, that's one of their fundamental things. Be careful. Watch out. Listen. You're, I'm warning you, okay? But... America seems to be uniquely situated both historically and and from the kind of perspective of uh, the unique way that God has blessed our country for a particular heresy called the prosperity gospel. And it's infiltrated every church. Okay? That is that all I've got to do is, and and I'm going to define what this means myself, I'm going to be a Christian to whatever you know, whatever that means. In other words, it may mean a lot of different things. But I'm going to be a Christian, and God's going to give me lots of goodies. And the more goodies I got, that means that the more God likes me. And you know, if, if, if in fact if I can keep on piling and piling and piling and piling up the goodies, God must really, really like me. Wow. Well, that doesn't seem to fit quite the scriptural evidence as well. So how do, we, how do we understand these things? And one fundamental thing that you've got to make a distinction between is what God promised to biological and theocratic Israel and how that is related to what God promises to his new covenant people, the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that he calls what? The church. There's, a, there's some continuity there, but there's a distinction to be made as to how God blesses. There is absolutely zero question. God very clearly outlines the program for Israel. If you will obey me, then all of the things that you desire in terms of being a great nation, military, economy, political leaders, they're going to be great. And for the most part, your, your people are going to be healthy and your crops are going to flourish, et cetera, et cetera. That's absolutely true. But does that carry over for the church? Are the same types of prosperity promises to continue into the church? Now, before y'all talk on me, okay, how many of you will have a place to sleep tonight? And it's not under a bridge somewhere. How many of you will probably eat two plus more meals today? I'll just leave it at that. Now, how many of you ladies didn't have a thing to wear? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Those things are gifts from God. They really are. So I don't want you to think well if I have provision that it's not a gift from God. But God really doesn't guarantee that you're going to have everything that you want. Okay? And sometimes in some ways he didn't doesn't really promise it, that we'll have everything we need in that sense. So, let's look at the psalm. Let's see how David works through it from the perspective of experience and years and see how we can be informed as to how we indeed, no matter the providence, the circumstances of our lives, still be a genuinely thankful people. All right, looking here, first of all, in verses 1 through 11, and poetry is notoriously hard to categorize, I was almost arbitrary in making these five divisions that I've made. But the first thing we're going to talk about is the freedom from fretting. Verses 1 and 2. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. What? Every dog has his day. That we may see those that in our temporal Horizontal evaluation—they are thriving. Well, here's the deal: they'll soon pass off the scene. They will soon pass off the scene. You remember the the, the parable, of the rich fool, the guy that 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 you know looks at, at how much wealth he's accumulated, and he says, you know, hey, my barn's not big enough; I need to build a bigger barn. And then God says, "You're a fool. You're a fool that that." You accumulate all this wealth, but you aren't concerned for eternal things. You aren't concerned for the things of God. And is it not easy? I know y'all look very, very spiritual today, okay? Yes, it's a holiday season. You get spiritual on holidays, you know. But don't you sometimes look around, and it's kind of why them and not me? Now, what, what I mean... Now, what do we talk about? It may be because their relationships are better than the relationships you're enjoying, you know, your marriage, your children, your parents, your, you know, your co workers. It, it may be that you look at their finances, and I know nobody ever looks at somebody's car or boat or house or lake house or condo at the beach or house in the mountains or their <laughs> vacations or anything, anything. None of us would ever do that. But why them? Not. Or why am I struggling with my own health crisis or a health crisis of someone that I love? Why, why you know, I've, I've always, quote-unquote, done things right. And I look around, and those things are hard. Those things are hard. But yet they're part of our experience of a fallen world. There's not a one-to-one relationship between what we do and what we don't do and what we see with the naked eye. We just simply need to remember that whatever we see in terms of temporalness, whatever it is, relationships, health, finances, whatever it is, it'll fade from the scene and it'll fade far quickly. Than we could ever imagine. David goes on, and his admonition is simply to trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the world, in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, if there's ever been a place to develop a theology of a blank check, there's your verse. I mean, there are a lot of them, but that's one of them. Again, I like God. He's a good guy and I like Maseratis and I I like Porsches and I like Hummers and Land Rovers and, and so I ought to be getting one because I like God. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Me and God got things worked out. So I'm the, del- I mean, I could I could understand somebody thinking that, but what does it what does it mean? It means that that word delight is not just, and again I'm going to use the word in a very non, just be a Christian, which here in Birmingham, Alabama, everybody's a Christian, right? I mean, look at the way our businesses and, and local governments are ran. Everybody's a Christian. Right? Yeah. So, delighting yourself in the Lord is the idea that I have God and His Son Jesus Christ the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit and I'm satisfied with that, that. That I am overwhelmed with the goodness of God and that I contemplate that. I revel in that. I rejoice in that. I give thanks for that. I worship the God who has Overwhelm me, and those, those those things have to be pursued. You know, I don't know about y'all, but I waste far too much time. Yeah, and, and again, relaxing and and you know whatever you enjoy. You know, I you know I watched a football game or two yesterday. You know, again, no, but when I. I think at the end of my life, I'm going to look back. And I probably watched too many football games, and, and among other things. okay, And, and so, there could have been more time devoted to what? The pursuit of the power and the presence of God. Pouring over His Word. Meditating over His truth. Praying to, to God. All of these things. So that I am more and more consumed and I'm less and less distracted. The more I'm distracted, the more I'm distracted. Does that make sense? The the more that I engage myself with the distractions of life, the more I'm engaged with the distractions of life. It's like a snowball. And so as I spend my time and spend my energy on the things of God, I come to delight in Him more. And Here's what He does. He doesn't say, well, you know, since you read three and a half chapters, not just three chapters in your devotion this morning, three and a half chapters. I mean, you took up that cross, man, I'm telling you. Three and a half chapters. Then you're really delighting in me. So you're going to get the goodies today. It means as we experience him and his grace, our heart, are so transformed that our desires for our lives become His desires for our lives. Yeah. Our desire becomes consistent with His desire. Again, when Jesus speaks of praying in His name and Him answering, what does that mean? It means answer, the praying as I'm transformed, I begin, my prayers begin to reflect the priorities of God. Instead of praying for things that are not within the realm of his priorities. And so, it is true that as we are consumed with the power and the presence of God, as we pursue those things in our life, we devote our time and our energy that something fundamentally will change about our life, that the things that we're passionate about, the things that we just think we have to have, are transformed so that God delights in giving you, not necessarily more of his stuff because you know if you think you've got stuff it's really God's stuff just reminding you you're just using it for a while but it's not that he gives you more stuff he gives you more of himself the greatest gift of God to his people is God himself yeah it's not more of anything else but himself and in that we find satisfaction satisfaction Again, David tells us to commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, He will act, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now, that seems to say something along the, the line of if we're faithful to God, everybody's going to sit up and take notice. Hadn't really been my experience. Don't think it's really been too much the experience of uh, the, the church. In the sense of it being obvious. But it is true. It is true that you will be known. You may not think you're known. But you will be known for the integrity and the holiness of your life. And you will stand out. You may not think you're standing out. People may not tell you you're standing out. But you will stand out. And so let's go, move forward into verse 7. Be still before Lord and wait patiently for Him. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is America. We invented the microwave. Okay? God so many times works in a crock pot. Not a crack pot. We, he works with some crack pots too. But. Crock pot. So many times what he does is is so slowly that it seems imperceptible. That that, that we cannot recognize what he's doing, but he is always faithful. And again, just as we said in verses 1 and 2, the temporary, temporal, circumstantial prosperity of those that are evil. Part of the system. In a fallen world, Many times, those that are wise to the ways of the world do well according to that standard. But it simply doesn't endure. And so we should understand that. Now, it doesn't mean that it will all crumble before they die. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, there are many scoundrels that die in great temporal comfort. Okay? There are many scoundrels that die in great temporal comfort. But again... That's not, our, that's not the, the ultimate perspective, is it not? Verse 8, refrain from anger. It's like wrath, fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Again, what? The evildoers have their day but ours shall be enjoyed for all of eternity. Now again, if we look at this, remember I said something about the older covenant. Well, what was the land? That was Israel. What did God say? Faithful to me, I'm faithful to you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you in in particular ways that have to do with money and Crops and kings and armies and all of that stuff. And that's, a, that's all good stuff. But it really does not carry forward in the same way under the new covenant. That really, if you look at the way the new covenant is ushered in on the heels of the older covenant, we get what the writer of Hebrews and others speaks of as better blessings. that that we receive the fulfillment of these Old Covenant blessings, but they're they're distinctly different. We we have a greater witness of God's Holy Spirit. We have a greater clarity to God's working out His purposes in His Son, Jesus Christ. We have a, a greater understanding of who God is and what He is going to accomplish in the world. And so we have a greater certainty about all things than the Old Covenant saint really probably could ever have. But he really doesn't promise we're going to live in a great nation. And he really doesn't promise that your crops will not fail or that your children will always flourish. That's simply not true. Well, let's move forward to the second issue I wanted to raise. Again, David writes of the futility of the wicked. Again, beginning in verse 12, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows and bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. The, their sword shall have their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the wicked, for the arms of the for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous. So once again, we see that there's always been this great conflict. Between good and evil. Between the people of God and the people of the kingdom of Satan. And and, and there's always going to be different ways that this warfare is manifested. But you can be sure. It's a very interesting verse, verse 13. The Lord laughs. I remember when I was growing up. My brother is five and a half years older uh, than I am. And we fought. And because he was enough older than me that I wasn't much of a threat, you know what would really infuriate me? When I'd come start throwing haymakers, I mean, just, man, I, I, I was fuming. He'd put his arm out and put it on my forehead and start laughing at me. Or he'd knock me down on the ground and just straddle me, sitting on my belly, and laugh at me. And there was nothing I could do. God. Wicked people think that they that maybe they look at us and because of our righteousness we have not embraced their agenda. And maybe even we indict their agenda. And they laugh at us because they're we're not flourishing as, as they are. But be, be know this for sure that God laughs at them that they think they are going to out scheme God. Think about that for just a moment. Just think about that. Think about Someone thinking that they're going to disregard the revelation of God in terms of His will as how we should live, how we should relate to the one another's of the the world and the one another's of the church. We're going to disregard that and do things our way. And we may flourish for a time. We may get by with it for a time. We may get by with it for our whole lifetime. But the Lord laughs; He scoffs at that foolishness, and so we need to understand that as, as we look out, as as I look around, and I'm going to tell you, and again, I, I'm I'm in the suburbs of Birmingham, Alabama, because I like it, because God has called me here. There are other reasons, okay? So I'm, I'm I'm very happy being here, but I could go to City Hall in Birmingham, Alabama and ring necks. I'm telling you, and and I've told you this before, um, and that Jefferson County, too, and probably most of the other cities and counties around here, um, the first thing they did when we moved to Birmingham was drill a billion-dollar hole under the Cahaba River that they never used, to my knowledge. Yeah, we got a billion-dollar hole in the ground. That's why we're the largest municipal bankruptcy in history, bigger than any of the idiots in California could pull off. And, and so, but yet, they're not going to get by with it. Now, and a lot of them, they had a kind of a come to Jesus, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, in the course of time, because a bunch of them wound up in jail. But yeah, they, their day will come, and so there is absolutely and ultimately a futility to the wicked. Let's move forward to the third issue, the contrast of two ways. Verses 18 through 24. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. Their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastors. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. The righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Again, one of the really neat things that I experience on occasion, I've told you many things about my dad. And uh, not a perfect man, but a good man, well-respected man. And it is a blessing for me to go back to my hometown that I haven't lived in in 23 years. My dad's been dead now for uh, 10 years, is that right? Yeah, almost 11 now. And speak, people speak highly of his integrity as a businessman, as a builder. And that's, it, it, it's so great to not have to be afraid somebody's going to tell me a story of some Scandal that he was involved in, that, 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 that his integrity has, has endured, and so that the righteous will leave a, a lasting legacy. Now, he goes on to say that that uh, the wicked, they pass away like, like the smoke. In other words, the smoke that was out here this morning going up, it's gone. It's gone. We don't have to worry with it anymore. That's the way the wicked are. Here's something I found. Look at verses 21 and 22. The wicked borrows, but doesn't pay back. The righteous is generous and gives. I'm amazed at the generosity of God's people. And I am absolutely amazed as well at the stinginess of those who do not know God. One of the things that gets released typically at some point in the year sometimes is the tax returns of political leaders. And sometimes they gave two or three percent to a charity. Really, they made most of them well into six, a lot of times into seven figures. They gave two or three percent. Um, God's people have a tendency toward what? Toward great generosity. They they give because what they have they they they've they've, they've learned that. Giving is always a rewarded. They, they they understand that I can accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and what? It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. One of the things about our indulgent culture, and, you know, there, there are many things from which we get highs. You know, we talk about drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and things like that. They, they give us a high. But one of the things that gives us highs is buying stuff. Did you know that? Did you know that? That that we can really experience, have a euphoric experience when we go capture, assault, conquer that new outfit. That those that new <laughs> That was not the appropriate time. That new set of golf clubs, that new hunting rifle, whatever it is. That new little techie, geeky little device that people walk around looking at. I don't know. But, but, but there really is. Problem is, it don't last long. It doesn't last long. And and so, again, God's people have a, a tendency to release their, their wealth back into the world, and they are blessed by it. They 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 experience the blessings of generosity, and they 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 give. And again, those that uh, the wicked, as he calls them here, they have a tendency to hoard, to not even to deal faithfully with their with their debts. I, I can think of a number of people that gained a, a fair degree of affluence. And they were notorious for preying on people in business, for paying their bills late, for trying to get out from paying their bills altogether, even though they had the wealth to do it. They were always trying to beat the competition or beat a supplier or whatever. And I mean, what a horrible thing to live in that fashion. But again, why? It's because listen, the worldview of unbelievers is always short sighted. It's always short sighted. It will never ever stand the test of fire. Okay? All right. Let's move to the fourth thing. We're running out of time. I want to finish. Again, David speaks of the perspective of perspective of years. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Again, David speaks. I have looked at all the perplexing issues of life. When I was young, I didn't have the advantage of the experience I have now. Solomon would come back and kind of say the same thing. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. You remember what he says? It's vanity. It's all meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. I've had it all. I've done it all. I've conquered all. But at the end of the day, it's pointless. It it, it did not satisfy me. And that's why he can exhort all of us to remember your creator in the days of the youth. Before the evil days come. Before you will say that I have no pleasure in them. No pleasure in what? I have no pleasure in all the vanities that I've accumulated for myself. All the great hordes of this. All the great piles of this. All the great stacks of that. None of that has satisfied my my soul. I, I look, I've got it all now. And, and in so many cases, I've done it at the expense of relationships. So all I've got left is this stack of stuff. And it's gathering dust. And the moths are eating it. And it's being invaded by rust. And so there's really no pleasure to be found in any of that. And so Solomon kind of came to to the same conclusion. Now again, we see there in verse 25. I have seen very godly people go through financial trials. I've known very godly people lose their homes and so forth and so on. I've seen them lose their businesses. Again, Old Covenant, New Covenant. God does not guarantee you that everything you touch is going to turn to gold. I know I've known a few people like that. But most, most of us, it's a lot more difficult than that. And so, again, uh, David writes to us, and, and I, I see this, and again, God promised under the old covenant his provision his watch care and I think it's still normative I think it's still normative to God for God to provide for his needs but you can't say it's 100% you, you see godly people that have suffered and suffered and suffered and they, they've been under persecution and things that we can't imagine and their godliness is far beyond ours and guess what they pass from this life owning nothing they pass from this life largely because of, they've been deprived of basic needs but again, David looks at this and he says to, to us that still what we must do is, is to turn away from evil and, and do good. That, that the Lord loves the practice of our, our justice and he will never forsake the saints. Now, that is something, what does the New Testament say? He'll never leave us or forsake us. That nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't mean. Nothing will ever give you an unbroken string of gains in the stock market. I wish it were so, I guess. Sometimes I think that I probably shouldn't say, since it's not so according to God's will, that I wish it were contrary to God's will. That's probably not a good thing to say. But as we think, it's, it's good for economic gain. It's bad for economic loss. But God doesn't promise just because you practice godliness that you shall always know economic gain. If you do, I pray it's a good thing. Now, let, let, me, let me say this, and it kind of goes beyond what's here, but do you realize that economic gain can be a bad thing for you? That you can become so enriched that you forget your great need for God? I would almost say that's one of the besetting sins of the American church. That we have, on average, so much that we forget that it's a gift of God. That that it's from God's hand that we receive all things. Um, Many of you have experienced something to what I've experienced over these last few years. You know, there's a saying, and I hear it, and some of our members have said this, if money will fix it, you don't have a problem. There's really some truth to that. You know what? I've had a problem money couldn't fix. Yeah. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I've had a problem that money will not fix. And so... Then you begin to realize the limited abilities that you have at your disposal. You begin to change your perspective as to, to what is valuable and what, what is temporal, what's eternal, and what's secondary. Because we can run into things that no matter what our balance sheet says, it won't be fixed. It won't be remedied. But our righteousness will stand as a transcendent testimony as will what? Our unrighteousness will stand as well. All right. Let me move forward to this final section. Beginning in verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Again, very closely tied to the older covenant, promise of the the land grant, for obedience, I have seen a wicked and ruthless man spreading himself like green laurel, like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found again. What those that are unrighteous, those that pursue ungodliness, pass, they pass from the scene; they're forgotten. They're forgotten. They do not leave a legacy of godliness. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall altogether. Uh, shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So we sit here today and we say, it's Thanksgiving, but my life is so tough. I, just, I don't know if I've got it within me to rejoice in the Lord. I don't know if I've got it in me to give thanks. But as, as we think of, of, of this... The reality is that, that for us, the, the reality that our sins are forgiven, the, the reality that, that what God is working in us by His grace and for His own glory and according to His, His own will, it shall endure. But those that do otherwise, their ultimate end is destruction. Very early in my kind of beginning to grow as a believer, I use the phrase fairly often. It's the only game in town. It's the only game in town. What, what was I talking about? The reality is, you can try to do life your way, or the world's way, or Satan's way, or whatever, however you want to characterize You can try to live for everything that which is in opposition to God affirms. You can try it. And the end thereof is destruction. It always will be. You may not see it. It may look like the, the end of those that live that way is, is great accomplishment. It may look that way. But the end, according to the Word of God, is destruct, destruction. But your life, your life of righteousness, your life of faithfulness will be an eternal testimony to the grace of God. So we can give thanks even though we look and we, we think, It's just not what I'd like to see. Life is just not what I would want it to be. I I see people that have compromised in every area and they're getting way ahead of me. But they will, according to the Word of God, have their just reward. As will you. Your faithfulness Will not ever be unrewarded. Your faithfulness will never, ever fail to gain the attention of Almighty God. And He will ultimately reward us with what? Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, quit the striving and enter. Enter into your rest. And for that, we give thanks. And then finally, verse 40, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. One of the things I say, now, uh, I guess I'm a little past middle age, just a year or two. I can't go to the health food store and get the supplements and think they're going to change a whole lot. I can't get on this diet or that diet, whatever they've got on the oddball channels on television, to, you know, cleanse whatever it is they think needs to be cleansed this week. I mean, there's no refuge. The only place that I may find refuge from the realities of a fallen world, my own advancing experience of mortality which one day will result in my death should the Lord not turn and will result in yours okay in which whatever I've supposedly accumulated if anything will no longer be under my authority but the thing is God will reward me on that day God has forgiven my sins which would have separated me from God. And in that, I may rejoice. And I, you know, and there is a sin. You know, the whole concept of thanksgiving was rooted in our founding fathers, their trip to this new world, their experience of a very unsmiling providence. That, you know what they did? In the face of the difficulties, They gathered what they had for a feast to God. Pretty biblical thing to do, actually. Even in the midst of difficulty, we gather together and we proclaim the truth that no matter what our eyes see, which many times is sickness and death and deprivation and hardship and alienation and estrangement, we look at those things, we experience those things, but what do we do? We confess, just like the psalmist David, that God is good to his children. And that we will experience his transcendent affirmation throughout all of eternity. It was on the first Thanksgiving, it surely it surely wasn't like they wanted. They didn't find the fountain of youth or whatever, you know, all those different things. But they took time, and remember this this term from back a few years ago or earlier this year. I guess it was no two years ago. Discipline. It takes discipline to say, "Well, yeah, this, 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 and this," and I'm just going to pout because of this, 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 and this. Okay. Yeah. God is good. God is good, and I'm going to I'm going to believe, and as much as possible, I'm going to live in the reality that in His right hand our pleasures forever. And in that, because God is faithful, we will give thanks. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Father, many of us are either in the midst of great difficulty or just moving just out of the realm of great difficulty. But God, You're good and you're faithful. You bless your people. And so, God, I pray that you would give to us thankful hearts. That, God, the the difficulties of life, while real, and have to be dealt with and sometimes resolved, that, that, Lord, we would also look to you and say, you know what? You are good. And you've been good to me. And in that, I will give thanks. Lord, I pray that you would work that deeply in our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.